Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. Our conversation today will cover a variety of timely macro topics and will offer you insights into asset allocations. So what to consider in light of the current market environment coupled with what the road ahead for market and economic conditions might have in store, including considerations within the alternative space. So looking forward to a wide-ranging and productive conversation. Let me take a moment to introduce to you who is joining us for today's conversation. Uh, We're fortunate to have with us on the line today, Jordi Visser, the President and Chief Investment Officer of Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors. Also joining me on the line, uh, glad to welcome back Brian Formento, Executive Director and Senior Portfolio Strategist with the UBS Family Office Solutions Group. Uh, Just some context around Brian's capacities here at UBS. Brian is responsible for articulating and delivering comprehensive research-driven asset allocation and portfolio strategy advice to our private wealth advisors and their ultra-high net worth clients. So, Jordy, Brian, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for dropping by, spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Uh, Brian, I know you'll be leading today's conversation with Jordy, so let me pass it over to you, Brian. Welcome. All right. Well, thank you, Dan, uh, for that introduction. And Jordy, great to have you today. Um, There's uh, lots to discuss what's been going on in the marketplace. And um, why don't we just jump right in? I'll kick off the first question. As the global economy remains in recovery mode from the impacts of the COVID pandemic, where do you believe U.S. economy currently is in its cycle relative to other developed countries, namely those within the Eurozone? Lots to unpack. <laughs> lots, lots to unpack, but that's a good starting point. And, and thanks again to both you and Dan for for having me back. I look forward to doing more of these in, in the future. Um, to kind of take that question, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to start with just COVID, um, and I'm just going to kind of ask everyone to think about where we are. And the easiest way to do that is to kind of break down what last year was, what this year is, and then think about it for next year. That way, you don't have to read the newspapers on it anymore. You don't have to focus, because I think it's been way too much of a focal point for people uh, over the course of the last year. It's had impacts on global GDP. So as I take you through it, just think about last year as 2020 was the recognition of COVID and the response. And the response involved money, but it also involved science. And so the vaccines were announced in November. So last year, the money and the the movement on the science allowed us to be in a position to have incredibly strong growth this year, but a very quick balance out of what happened last year. Now, this year, I wouldn't say is about the COVID response. 2021 is about the the unsynchronized vaccine distribution. And rather than focus on the waves, the Delta variant did this, uh, the reality is we've had kind of a staggered reopening across the globe. Uh, Europe and the U.S. made uh, vaccines available very quickly while Asia was very slow. And then obviously starting in really April to May, India started with the Delta variant, then it went back through the EU, but then it really went through Asia over the summertime and we had a shutdown. So rather than think about it as, as COVID and the fact that we're going to have another wave, we now have about 50% of the global population is vaccinated. Um, the, the theme for next year will be science has won. 
And the reason I say science is one is coming up in the next three months, we're also going to have a pill treatment that's going to come out um, in, in terms of, you know, not having to have an intravenous uh, treatment. And that just means that the vaccines are there. We're, we're growing in vaccines. People have the choice and the pills are coming. So you're going to have a situation where you're not going to have an unsynchronized uh, environment. So right now, the ASEAN PMIs are at 44 and a half to 45. The European and the U.S. PMIs are at 60. So really what COVID has done is we came out of it last year. This year has been a staggered uh, movement. I think now for both Europe, the U.S., and Asia, we're finally synchronized in almost every lockdown mobility type index that I look at is at the strongest point since before COVID. And honestly, it was about where it was last summer for the globe because Asia was almost in uh, their version of a full lockdown. So people should be focused more on the reopening that's happening and what and start preparing for, for 2022, where COVID will not be a story, in my opinion, for 2022. Right. So as you kind of think about that, what are you anticipating for the recovery, for the balance this year and really going into next year? Because I know there's been a lot of talk around uh, peak growth and versus peak earnings. Maybe you could shed a little light on that. Yeah, I, I think in, in both cases, uh, in terms of real GDP, we are at peak growth, um, and I think we are at peak earnings. Uh, the problem with that is I, I don't think that is the story that people need to be focus on, focusing on coming out of this. So uh, if you remember last year, we talked a lot about modern monetary theory and what that meant. Um, we have a excess of money liquidity sloshing around in the system, and we have rate negative real yields all over the world. So what you have is a situation where people have to start focusing a little bit more on the supply side of the equation, and that's what the transition we're going we're gonna to make, and, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get into some things on it. But for the time being, for the next three months, you will see a bounce back in the ASEAN PMIs, even though China is going to be somewhat of a drag, not because of Evergrande, but because of the power shortage that's going on in China, and they're having to shut down things. The Beijing Olympics are coming up. They want to make sure it looks uh, sunny outside so the pollution comes down. You're going to have some bit of a, a small drag from China, but they'll boost the service side, and they'll make sure that PMIs are around 50, but you're going to see a bounce in, in ASEAN uh, PMIs. Already the first one uh, in that area to come out was Australia. It bounced sharply. Uh, you're going to see the other ones uh, across the board bounce, and that's going to take the ASEAN PMIs back up towards the peak again. And that'll keep the European and the U.S. ones up near 60. But when you go through the isms and you look at what's happening, the real story is not on uh, the demand side. It's on the supply side. And that's where I think everyone's going to have to start to make a transition. As I speak about really the next three to five years, if not longer, the supply side is, is going to be the story, and it's something we haven't had to deal with in a while. Um, over the next three months, you're going to see travel start to surge. You've started to see finally the vacation names, as I call them, the hotels and the airlines around the globe have started to be a good place to invest. I think that's finally going to be a, a place for them to be because with the COVID restrictions coming down, travel will start to surge globally. And from talking to a lot of pension investors across the globe, a lot of them cannot make investments into funds until they've traveled. They need to do on-site due diligence. They can't do it from sitting on Zoom. Uh, the more flexible ones can, but the majority of the people that I've spoken to around the world at the CIO level, there's going to be a tremendous amount of liquidity that will be coming into the marketplace that's been sitting on the sidelines, and that's going to have a huge impact uh, on uh, the way assets move and where you want to be. Uh, the supply side will gradually pick up. 
but the demand side is going to pick up much faster. And when I say the supply side, everyone has heard about the bottlenecks, the, the ports being shut. There will be a gradual recovery in those, but it's going to be a lot slower than the demand side, and that's been the theme that we've seen since COVID. The only other part out of the question that you answer in terms of central banks, it will be a year of unsynchronized central bank policy. Um, we're already seeing rates being uh, taken up in certain countries. I'll just use Brazil, where I, I lived for a couple of years as an example. Uh, Brazil has a different view on inflation and how to deal with it and how how uh, stubborn it's going to be on the upside, where in most of you know the Western world we've been talking about transitory. So central bank action will be unsynchronized because of this battle between demand picking up, uh, inflation going higher, which will mean nominal GDP will be higher, but real GDP will come down. And this will be a very different environment for the next three to five years than what we lived through post the great financial crisis from 2010 to 2020. Well, certainly uh, thinking about inflation, uh, I guess that leads us into because of COVID, what policy mistakes remain top of mind and the potential for disruption moving forward and some of the other risks that you might be monitoring? Yeah, it's it, it's a good question, and and I'll I'll just say I think the policy mistakes have already been made, and now we're going to be transitioning into a world of of living with uh, the mistakes, and really the mistakes are just the reality of what it is. Whether you're you know watching a football game and they change the rules on how you can touch the quarterback or how you can touch the wide receivers. Uh, the rules are the rules, and right now the policymakers have decided to give an enormous amount of money into the system. Uh, at the same time, uh, they're focusing on, uh, on climate change uh, and inequality, which both, to me, are going to have impacts on the energy side uh, because they're going to increase the bottom end of, of, of the equality side, which will lead to more volumes uh, through things that are, are close to universal basic income. And at the same time, we've given a lot of money and we're continuing to look at more fiscal money towards ramping things up, and we just don't have enough power to deal with that. So the policy mistakes, in my opinion, have already occurred. And where they're showing up is in this three-headed monster of what's going to make inflation stay on the higher side for the foreseeable future, and those are energy, labor shortage, and bottlenecks. Um, energy is something we're very focused on here. Uh, I you know, I, I, I believe the ESG policy, the lack of response and investment capital that's got going into the space uh, does not allow us to deal with the problem that we had as, as recently as 2008. It's shocking to me that people um, forget that in 2008, energy prices were at 150. And then we had this phenomenal technology in, in fracking. And after the great financial crisis, oil went back up to 100 stayed there for a period of time, but as fracking uh, started to show that we could get oil uh, in a very effective way, and it was fairly push-button, that drove oil down close to zero. Um, the papers that I wrote from 2010 to 2020 were centered on exponential innovation and oil prices going to zero. Now it's the opposite to me. Now we're in a period where power, which is really the opposite of 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 innovation. Uh, if you want to fly to the moon, you need power to get there. It's not technology. If you want to uh, have it, go mine for Bitcoin, you need power. It doesn't matter what it is. The opposite of innovation always ends up being power. And right now, we're not investing in that. We're trying to go green. And I think that's going to end up being a policy mistake and not understanding how many, how disruptive it'll be as we try to make this switch. So those things on the energy side are one, but on the labor shortage side, by giving people a lot of money, um, you've 
had an enormous amount of early retirees. Their house prices got up in value significantly. This is different than after the uh, Lehman Brothers, where house prices stayed lower. So that means people have have equity in their homes, which means they're, they don't really have to work at this point the way they did coming out of the last crisis, and that's leaving to job openings that are through the roof, but at the same time, not finding people to work there. That lack of labor, the higher energy prices is driving freight prices higher, and we've got bottlenecks around the globe because we forget that the policy mistake that was done before 2000, before COVID, was the fact that we're still in a trade war with China. We have not taken the tariffs off. If anything, our relationships with China are getting worse. And believe it or not, everything was made in China before that, and now we're disrupting it. So you're seeing shortages, chip shortages. You're seeing China trying to hoard and build their own chip suppliers. We're we're having it. This is a um, a situation that people will have to deal with for some time. And the policy mistakes uh, they've they've been put in place, and I don't see them uh, changing anytime soon. Right. Well, it's certainly not just power shortage in China. You could look at the rolling brownouts in California or the lack of wind power in Europe and pushing dirty power more expensive through the lack of investment, right? So that probably continues now. Yep, uh, it, it it does. And I know we're going to talk about fixed income, but I just want to make sure that we, we almost over talk about fixed income because obviously <laughs> historically, you know, we all took the efficient frontier, you know, in, in in Finance 101 and read about how important fixed income is in a portfolio, uh, we have negative real yields around the globe. And in the U.S., uh, something amazing happened recently and in Europe where high yields, uh, the ra- high yield rates were below inflation. And you have to think about what that's going to do to a portfolio when you have inflation above the highest least liquid, risky uh, bond market out there in terms of high yield, we're in a very different situation. When we started after the great financial crisis, we weren't really worried about inflation, but at least we had protection because high yield and investment grade were both up around 7 to 9% coming out of the last crisis. Well, investment grade right now is below 2%. Uh, headline inflation is, is above 5 Core inflation is above 4 And I don't see those coming down based on the things I mentioned. So your point about the power shortages, um, they, they're, they're, they're not just in the countries you mentioned. We've had petrol shortages in the U.K. recently. Right. Natural gas is up. It's spreading across the globe, Brian. And I, I think it's uh, people have to start facing the fact that this is a – uh, a longer-term problem that would have to be managed by cash going into the energy sector for investment. I just don't see it happening. Yeah, and I think I shared with you before, we've been very focused here at UBS in moving clients out of on-the-run fixed income because of that negative real rate into non-directional hedge funds and things like your your multi-strike fund, as an example. I guess maybe before we turn to fixing fully, maybe we could just talk a little bit about sector bets and also equity rotations that are in the marketplace, because I know you've mentioned where people being long passive investments just by default are now short energy and long tech. That may not be the best way to be positioned, certainly given your recent comments. Yeah, it's actually, uh, it's an interesting point. And, and just for, for background, um, you know, my career, I, I did work at Morgan Stanley and I ran the ETF business for, for two years before it really took off. This was in the uh, the 2000 to 2002 period. Um, so I've seen the, the, the growth. The thing that's interesting is passive investment is not passive investment. When you buy the S&P, by definition, you're buying a slow active management fund, which means that you're, you're basically 
at this stage, technology, when you break out Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, those five names are about 23% of the S&P 500. Um, they're a similar type number to the S&P 1500. Uh, technology X those names is about 18%, which means as an investor now sitting in the S&P 500 or the S&P 1500, you're basically about 40% in what I would call is, is tech. Um, energy is a 2% weighting. So if energy prices are going to go higher and power is the, the opposite of innovation and the cost of it, then these, these companies are going to have troubles both because of the bottlenecks that are up there, the, ship, the chip uh, shortages. Um, all of these things lead to a period where the investments that you have in your portfolio that worked the last decade are likely not to work. So the first component, and, and again, it's what, what we do uh, from the firm, is we focus on active management. And the areas right now that to us make the most sense are small cap over large cap, uh, it's value over growth. I, I don't think it's as uh, a, a big a story as people make in terms, of, in terms of it, but that means that financials and energy, to me, are two probably my two favorite sectors um, going forward. Uh, and if you're out of uh, technology at, or if you're in technology at this point, synthetically, again, you're believing inflation is going to go down because tech does better during disinflation. And at the same point, you're betting that rates are going to stay low. And I think rates are going to grind, are going to grind higher. I don't see a sharp move higher. And that means that the passive investments that people are sitting in are, are not going to work that way. And I'll just throw one more on it because I know you guys also do international investing. Um, passive investing in MSCI right now is about 65% the United States. Well, the United States only has 2% of the index being in energy. Most other countries around the world have a higher weighting in, in, in financials and energy. And so that means that internationally, I think Europe, uh, emerging markets, Asia, all of them are going to do better in the coming years. And that just means people are going to have to rotate. And we're starting to see that rotation now. Um, I'll leave you guys with just one thing uh, in terms of something to watch. We monitor here the percentage of names with inside the S&P 1500 that are outperforming the index. That's what we call as the alpha pool. There are 1,506 names in the S&P 1500 right now. Yesterday, about 1,200 of the names outperformed the S&P 1500. So far today, uh, with the market down, uh, about 1,100 have outperformed. We haven't had two back-to-back -back, uh, days where 70% of the index outperformed since July of last year. It's been uh, it, the, the time before that was April of last year. We think we're starting to see a rotation where um, you're going to see more active managers be in a better position uh, that are more diversified, where ones that were more concentrated during uh, 2010 to 20 did well. We're starting to see active managers who are more diversified. It's going to help quant strategies. It's going to help uh, some things that hadn't worked. So things that hadn't worked in people's portfolios, say, over the last five to ten years, I think are going to be in a different stage. So it's going to force people to rotate. Do you think that uh, those managers that have concentrated portfolios and have been chosen really because of their tracking error, do you think that they're going to they'll suffer as well, or do you just think their opportunity set's not large enough? Well, we've kind of seen that this year, right? I mean, we we read the headlines with with uh, with GameStop in January, and then we had Archegos um, later. These were obviously very concentrated portfolios. The other problem with them is that they're all focused for the most part, on being long technology and short 
the brick and mortar side. And um, you know, I'm I'm a believer in the revenge of the old economy and the fact that uh, in a period of inflation where you've got pricing power, uh, you have to focus on the companies that don't have the margin issues as much. Ones that aren't as big, they don't have supply. They're not depending on supply chains throughout Asia. Uh, I think there's a lot of issues in there where a lot of the concentration is really towards growth funds that are more geared towards technology. And so a lot of times what happens in a market is we reward investors in a certain particular strategy. And then all of a sudden, if the environment changes dramatically, and again, I'll use a, a football analogy. If you've set up your, you know, your, your football team right now to be geared towards running and not towards throwing, when they've changed the rules to, you can't hurt the, the quarterback and you, you know, you, you can't touch the wide receiver. That's why there's no, very seldom is there a, a running back drafted in the first round, but you have tons of wide receivers drafted in the first round. So you have to adapt. And unfortunately, a lot of investors have rewarded growth because it's it's worked. And they've rewarded concentration because it's worked. And now I think we're swinging back the other direction. Looking forward, and given your comments around fixed income, what role do you expect them to play in portfolios today? I know that just on some analytical work that we've done, when we look at like an 80-20 portfolio for aggressive investors versus an all-equity portfolio, there's really no difference in risk between the two. So we're going to get back to that that comment, and I think you know the phrase that we've used here as 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 we've had success this year with our fund in terms of, of speaking with advisors. The theme that's come up the most is, uh, and it's really an answer to a question, how do you de-risk de but not de-return? And so your point, um, as you're thinking about allocation shifts, everyone's going to have one problem they haven't had. And if I leave you know, this group with one thing to think about, you know, 2010 to 2020, if you go back to the beginning and you read everything written about quantitative easing, everyone was worried about inflation. Um, oh, with all this money going in the system, we're going to have inflation. But at the same time that we were doing quantitative easing, we were putting in austerity measures around the globe. Um, we were trying to focus on the debt side because the problem coming out of the last crisis was debt. That led to an environment where we had very low inflation and positive real rates. The problem for investors at this point is the de-risk but not de-return you have a bogey now that's going to be much harder. And the storyline starting next year, and it's already kind of started, but it's going to be the big political theme. And that's what you always want to focus on as we get now with inside uh, you know, a year of the midterm elections, is what are people going to be most angry about next year? And the thing I think everyone's going to be most angry about is that inflation stays high, rates stay low, returns come harder to come by, because if you're in the S&P 500, I'm not expecting a lot of returns over the next few years because the weightings are so geared towards technology. So if I'm right about inflation staying higher, oil heading up well through 100, and rates staying low, you're in a position where people are going to have to make decisions. And so this de-risk, not you know de-return, has been a story that we've heard in terms of our marketing uh, for the fund, and it's one of the reasons why for it, we've had success because people are looking for fixed income diversifiers. They're looking to swap for underperforming alts that they've had in there. They're looking for drawdown funds, or they're looking for places, drawdown funds are looking for places to put cash um, because cash is at zero too. And so when you have negative real rates, eventually that bogey of, you know, cost of living uh, starts to offset. And I think people, are, retirees are going to start worrying about 
you know, how are they going to make money enough for retirement? I had this conversation with a, uh, a CIO at a pension, uh, one of our corporate pension uh, investors, who basically started saying, we don't have COLA, uh, we don't have a cost of a living adjustment, but we have retirees that are already starting to say, hey, you're not meeting the returns I need to keep up with the cost of living, and we're only one year into this inflation side. So the fact that this is starting now is going to be a major theme going forward. And so your point about how we think about, you know, buckets and weightings and things, it's going to be this relationship of risk to reward, but now you're going to be incorporating higher inflation as well. Well, Jordy, this has been great. Really appreciate you coming on today and sharing your thoughts with us. Look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the future. I appreciate it, Brian. I look forward to doing more of these as well. Thanks a lot for having me. Great. Thank you. Well, Brian, Jordy, thank you again for spending some time with our listeners, our clients, and for sharing with us all of the insights that you did. A lot here to follow up on, and perhaps we can look forward to a follow-up conversation down the pike. Though, thank you again for joining us on the UBS Market Moves podcast today. Today, we've been joined by Jordy Visser, the President and Chief Investment Officer of Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors, as well as Brian Formento, Executive Director and Senior Portfolio Strategist with the UBS Family Office Solutions Group. The UBS Market Moves podcast channel is available where podcasts are found, including on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Pandora. Visit UBS.com forward slash studios to view the entire podcast offering, as well as the new UBS trending video series. From UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice for the basis for making any investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed may not be those of UBS Financial Services, Inc. UBS Financial Services, Inc. does not verify and does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of the information presented. Weiss Multi-Strategy Advisors and UBS Financial Services, Inc. are not affiliated. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.